Weddings, college graduations, your stepmom placing third in a dog grooming competition. We've all got reasons to gift this summer, so give them something they'll love, drinks. And get them all from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on beer, wine, spirits, then get them delivered in time for your summer celebrations. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Joining us today on the Enemies List podcast is my friend Max Boot. You've read Max in the Washington Post. You've read his books in the New York Times, multiple bestsellers in the New York Times, including uh, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Max is part of the group of Never Trump folks and post-MAGA Republican folks whose writing and thinking a lot of people have been very influenced by. He's joining us today, and we're going to talk about Ukraine, America, China, a whole bunch of stuff covering the waterfront of how the party of today is a very different place than it was in generations past. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. We can review for last week. Well, look, the thing that dominated it all was CPAC. And CPAC told us the lesson that we already knew, that Donald Trump still runs the conservative part of the MAGA base, that Ron DeSantis didn't have the guts to show up. He's a brittle, fragile candidate, weak in the knees, low in the T, and that the crazies are fully in charge. When you have people like Carrie Lake and Seb Gorka and the varieties of the mutant parade weirdos who now run the MAGA movement. When you have Kimberly Guilfoyle up there basically table dancing, this is the this is the weird confluence of where the MAGA thing is. And last week really was defined by the CPAC craziness, the CPAC weirdness. And those are people, if you look at their profile, like the demographics and who they are, it's a much smaller thing this year because Match Lap's under investigation for sexual assault. But if you look at, at the demographics, who the people that were there are, that's who votes in a Republican primary. And those people are not done with Trump. They are not done with Trump by a long shot. He went out and gave one of the most, and I say this even by Trump standards, one of the most batshit, crazy, insane-ass speeches I have ever seen. It was nuts across the board. It had everything from flying cars to new cities to electing school principals to every other goddamn whim and offense in his head, but it really is a preview. These other people, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, who showed up, come on, get the fuck out of here. They are so not going to be the nominees in 2024. And Ron DeSantis not having the guts to show up told people a lot. This is a barometer of what's coming. This is a indicator of what's happening. And as in terms of the two consequential things that came out late last week, I think that the CPAC was really the biggest. There's another one you really need to focus on, folks. And that is this gimcrack horseshit third party plan from No Labels. No Labels is out registering to get on the ballot with a third party candidate in about nine or 10 
swing states that Biden needs to win. Their model and the model that came out from Third Way analyzing it will re-elect Donald Trump. Remember this. When you think of no labels, you should think Donald Trump. No labels elects Donald Trump. The no labels plan elects Donald Trump. If you vote for the no labels candidate, you're electing Donald Trump. No labels elects Donald Trump. Donald Trump equals no labels. Those folks may have very good intentions. They may be very kind people. I don't know them that well. They may think that they're going to do some beautiful bipartisan thing that's going to bring people together but that flies in the face of history and reality and our politics, and it will divide off Democratic voters that Joe Biden needs to win in 2024, and it will reelect Donald Trump. Don't take my word for it. Look at the third way analysis. Although I will give you further analysis on this matter because it is of it is of absolutely vital consequence that people understand if you're funding no labels right now, you are funding a third party effort that will elect Donald Trump. Just as the third party race of Ross Perot, as he was scanned as as a a conservative, it peeled off the enough votes from George H.W. Bush for Bill Clinton to win. Just as Ralph Nader peeled off enough Democratic votes for George W. Bush to win twice, they will put a conservative-leaning Democrat or a moderate-leaning Democrat or a soft-leaning Republican to try to appeal to Democratic voters. They will pull them off of Joe Biden, and Donald Trump will win. I beg of you, take this seriously. And the final thing from last week I really want to talk about is the continued expose over Fox News. Remember, they are not a news organization. You'll hear more about this in my rant at the end of the show today. Fox News is not a news organization. We saw it very clearly that Rupert and Sean and Laura and Tucker and the rest of the clack that run Fox News understood that they were lying to the American people. They understood they were lying to the American people for months about the election. They were lying to the American people knowing that this conspiracy theory that they were the chief promulgators of, that Donald Trump had lost the election, they knew it was a lie from election night on. They knew it was a lie from the entire time. And now we're seeing Kevin McCarthy put in the hands of Tucker Carlson the footage of January 16th so that they can rewrite history. Last week was a very consequential week. These three stories, I think, are really big, and we need to keep paying attention to them because all three of them will continue to evolve. With that, let's get on with the show. Max, thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the uh, enemies list. You are a guy who is deeply knowledgeable about American foreign policy, American military policy. And I'm struck with this moment. When, when I knew we were going to have you on, I was struck with this moment like, how would a generation before us have looked at our involvement in Ukraine? There would not have been, I don't think, this sort of politicized division inside both the Republican Party, certainly, and this pro-Putin faction that's become louder and more confident. Well, on the on the positive side, I don't think in the 1980s you would have seen the Democratic Party as united as it is uh, behind mm -hmm. Ukraine at the current moment. And I would say the Democrats have become pretty hawkish on Russia, in part because Russia has so openly cited uh, with the MAGA wing of the Republican Party and, of course, helped to elect Donald Trump in 2016. But on the flip side of it is the fact that I think Republicans from the 1980s 
and I and I say this as somebody who is currently finishing a biography of Ronald Reagan, I think Republicans in the 1980s would be pretty shocked to see that a lot of Republicans today don't want to support freedom fighters against the evil empire, which is what Russia very much is today. I mean, it's it's stunning when, you know, the whole basis of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, whatever you may think of it, was to support uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan or the Contras in Nicaragua or others who are resisting what mm-hmm. were viewed as Soviet encroachments. And today, obviously, it's the uh, brave people of Ukraine who are resisting uh, this completely unprovoked Russian invasion. And yet, almost half of Republicans think that we're giving them too much aid and and a growing number think that we should cut them off entirely. That's that's a shocking development and really a sign of a party that, in my view, has lost its way in foreign policy as in so many other matters. You know, I think that I think that's a really good point, Max. Is that there is this? Um, it's not simply like a like a resistance to providing them funding. It's also there's a kind of a pro-Putin cultural affinity for Putin or Putinism that seems to me that's been growing inside the GOP for the last uh, 10 years or so. I think that's right. And it's especially striking to contrast it with the extreme hawkishness in the Republican Party towards China. I mean, the Mm -hmm. the Republican Party is 110% united on a very hardline anti-China policy. And I might add, by the way, almost all Democrats are are right there with them. And yet, so how did Republicans, so many of them, justify taking a hard line against Beijing, but a soft line against Moscow? It doesn't make any sense, especially considering that China is not the country that's actually invading its neighbors. I mean, it's threatening to invade its neighbors, and we should resist that right. uh, with their threats against Taiwan. But Russia has gone beyond threats. It's actually invaded uh, Georgia. It invaded Ukraine in 2014. And of course, it greatly expanded its invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And I'm outraged by the fact that a lot of Republicans don't seem to be all that outraged about that. Now, I should add that, you know, I'm talking about only one part of the Republican Party, the MAGA wing of the GOP, because there is also the more conventional, traditional Republican Party represented by Mitch McConnell, whose only criticism of of Biden's handling in, in Ukraine is that he's not doing enough to help the Ukrainians, which is a criticism I can understand and get behind. But uh, there's really a sense that Mitch McConnell uh, is uh, kind of yesterday's news. He is uh, obviously somebody who's been around for many decades and came up in a very different Republican Party from the one that exists today. I think McConnell represents a a a rump faction inside of the MAGA movement now, or inside of the Republican movement now, that after 2024, I mean, I'm, I'm very hopeful we're going to get to the end of the uh, of, of before 2024, have the Russians, you know, defeated in Ukraine. It's still a, a, you know, still a bit of a, of a high hill to climb, but I think McConnell's going to have a whole bunch of additional MAGA style Republican senators by the time 24 rolls around. And it's going to be even harder for him to hold the line after, uh, you know, they, they've got 23 seats up that are going to be competitive for Republicans um, in, in, in 2024. I think we could end up with a lot more people who are less like Mitch McConnell and more like the Donald Trump wing of the party. Yeah, I think that's an argument for why uh, the Biden administration needs to pull out a lot of the stops right now to help Ukraine win as quickly as possible, which includes, you know, sending F-16s, which includes sending the attack comes the longer range rockets and 
other mm-hmm. capabilities that they want and need because we can't afford to wait for years. I mean, leaving aside the, the horrible human cost of allowing this Russian invasion to go on, there is also the issue of how lasting is American support going to be for Ukraine? And as you say, if the Republicans make gains uh, in, in future elections, you could see the election of a lot more MAGA-type Republicans who are going to be decidedly sympathetic to, to Russia, and that's going to be very bad news for Ukraine. I'm curious about that, the, the, one of those questions, and it's one I've been thinking a lot about lately, is what's the hesitation in your mind over training up you know, uh, a couple dozen Ukrainian fighter pilots? We've got F-16s to spare and then some. We have, we have F-16s piled high and stacked deep. Um, it's 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 a six or eight week you know in doc program to learn to fly and fight them. What do you think the hesitation is? Why where is that hesitation coming from? Uh, in your opinion, because that that to me seems like that would be an immediate battlefield game changer across a whole bunch of different regions. I agree, and I, I don't understand why we didn't start providing those F-16s last year when it became clear that Ukraine was not going to fall. And I've, you know, I've talked to administration officials about this, tried to get an answer out of them. It's very frustrating because the general rationale is that, well, we don't want to provoke Russia too much. We want to limit the conflict. I've heard people off the record suggest to me, well, what if the Ukrainians take our F-16s and go bomb Moscow? Well, okay, I don't think that's going to happen because, in fact, the Ukrainians already have fighter jets they already have MiGs that could reach Moscow. It's not that far mm-hmm. away. And they've actually been very scrupulous about observing the restrictions that we put on the use of our weaponry, telling them you can't use U.S.-made weapons right. to attack uh, inside Russian territory. And they've abided by that. So I don't think there's a real concern. With the high, mar- with the high Mars, they've had that rule. Yeah, with, with the High Mars and, and whatever Mars else inside. we provide. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, they've been very responsible allies and, and prudent stewards of American aid. So I don't think that's a realistic concern. But, I, you know, I think since day one, there has been uh, this this fixation in the Biden administration, starting with President Biden himself, about, you know, not allowing this conflict to escalate into a war between Russia and the U.S. And that's a legitimate concern. Nobody wants a nuclear war, obviously. We should limit right, the sure. conflict. But I just don't understand some of the restrictions that we're putting down because, I mean, we can, you know, we've provided, you know, uh, Patriot batteries and NASAMs and other, you know, stingers and other anti-aircraft systems. So we're saying, you know, sure. it's not provocative to shoot down Russian aircraft with ground-based air defenses, but it would be provocative to shoot them down with fighter aircraft. I don't, I don't really get that distinction. Yeah, it, it's 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 an odd one to me, and I, and I know there was some a little bit of a move on on providing them A tens, but I think that's you know, I, I don't think that's going anywhere. I think the F 16s seem to be the the, the place there that the the energy and the desire is right now. But what's your take on uh, on the situation right now on the ground in Ukraine? I mean, given European and American aid has been at a at a good, I would not say great, but good cadence. Um, you know, there, there's some people that argue we're giving them just enough not to lose. I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's the case, or if you think that the that the, that the Russian—I almost said Soviet because I'm old—that <laughs> um, the Russian, like the, the 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 wear and tear on the Russian military seems to have been, um, you know, absolutely catastrophic. They're down to untrained human wave attacks essentially at this point. This is like the Iran-Iraq war in 1980 of, you know, half a million human wave fighters coming over the border. Um, Where do you think the war stands right now in Ukraine? 
Well, at the moment, it's in a, it's in a bit of a stalemate, but we should not necessarily assume that the stalemate will last indefinitely because if we know one thing from the study of military history, it's that what appears to be gridlock on the battlefield can suddenly be shattered by you know, capable offensive operations. And that's what uh, the U.S. and Europe are trying to enable the Ukrainians to do by finally pledging to provide main battle tanks and also very importantly mm-hmm. training Ukrainians uh, in armored warfare, training them in combined arms warfare, trying to give them the capabilities to bust through the Russian lines, in particular to sever the land bridge uh, in southern Ukraine that the Russians have established mm-hmm. between Crimea and Russia proper, which is the whole basis of their position in in Ukraine. I mean, at the moment, the Russians clearly seem to be pretty spent, and you know there was an expectation that they would mount some big spring offensive. But what, what we seem to be seeing right now is that the offensive is happening, and hardly anybody's even noticing because it is so ineffectual and so unsuccessful. As you say, in many cases, they are sending their fighters in these human wave attacks, and they are taking catastrophic casualties. I mean, the Russians have lost in the past year far more troops than they have lost in all of their conflicts since 1945 combined. I mean, it's they've you know they're losing more in a year than we lost in decades in Iraq and Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. it's it's a very heavy cost. They're also losing massive amounts of equipment that are very hard for them to replace. They 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 don't have the manufacturing capacity to to replace all these armored right. car- personnel carriers and tanks and other things that that they are losing. What they do have is a lot of people, and they they were successful in mobilizing something on the order of three hundred thousand recruits last fall. And those are, as you as you suggested, those are not well trained troops. They are not very good at offensive operations. They don't really know what they're doing, but right. Uh, they have allowed the Russians to thicken their lines and to fortify their positions. And they're basically created a mass on the ground, which will make it harder for the Ukrainians to attack. And so I think that's you know yet another reason why it's imperative to provide the Ukrainians with as much support as possible right now, because the longer they wait, the greater the risk that this is going to become a frozen conflict and that the Russians will just dig in and hold their current mm-hmm. positions indefinitely while getting ready at some point in the future to mount a more effective offensive on Kyiv. With kids around, me time runs out fast. Don't waste valuable child-free minutes on a drink run. Instead, get Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly has the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Get date night rolling before your parents bring him back. How about a living room sip and paint? They'll never know you stole their crayons. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. I think one of the things that, and I'm curious about your take on this, I think Biden has been a, a real shot in the arm for NATO and a real breath of fresh air in terms of American leadership once again uh, dealing with NATO as if it wasn't something transactional, if it wasn't like you pay us money and we'll do this. Um, uh, and and I think that that you know his visit to Kiev was a very important symbolic visit, I, and I think that the I want to go. I want to loop this back again to the sort of political tradition of strength against what was the Soviet Union and is now, of course, the Russian Empire. Um, you know, there's that that arc from Truman to Ike to Kennedy, all the way up to 
Trump, and then at Trump it broke. And, and there's something about that that breakage, this strange isolationism in America that is obsessed only about China. They're not worried about about Russia engaged in actual invasions that that are disruptive to Europe and everywhere else. But the hypothetical of China in their mind is so vivid and so weird. I mean, it's almost as if this is a sort of, uh, again, that cultural affinity they have for Putin and Putinism, but also the racial question, I think, cannot be completely ignored when you look at the way the party is dealing with China. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in some ways this is hearkening back to a traditional pre-Cold War Republican foreign policy, or, or Repu- let's let's actually say a pre-Eisenhower Republican foreign policy, because you saw this in the late 40s, early 50s as well, where back mm-hmm. in those days, you know, Republicans like Robert Taft, Mr. Republican, and others, uh, they were also, you know, uh, beating the war drums with China. They wanted, you know, and of course, in the Korean War, Douglas MacArthur wanted to go out and fight a full-scale war against China in order to defeat North Korea, including using nuclear weapons. And that was kind of the drumbeat of the Republican Party in the 1950s. But at the same time, many of the same people who were saying, you know, we have to be prepared to fight a nuclear war with China were also saying, like, you know, what happens in Europe isn't really much of our concern. And we should basically let the Europeans take care of that. So there is that kind of traditional Republican quasi-isolationist foreign policy, which has been Mm -hmm. more concerned with developments in uh, in the Caribbean and in Central America and in developments in, uh, in with China and East Asia, whereas it's viewed, you know, involvement in Europe as something that these pointy-headed elitists in the Northeast, New York bankers, <laughs> Jews, uh, globalists, all sorts of nefarious interests, those are, those are the people who are pushing our boys, quote-unquote, into a war on their behalf, you know, Charles Lindbergh opposing uh, U.S. aid uh, to the Allies in, in World War II, uh, and I think that basically went uh, that that attitude basically went underground after Eisenhower won the Republican nomination in '52, and Republicans adopted this uh, allied, uh, you know, this this foreign policy focused on helping allies, working with NATO, holding the line against the Soviet Union, and that was very much the case up through you know, Ronald Reagan and beyond. Uh, But I I think now what you're seeing with Trump is that he has kind of opened the floodgates for a different kind of Republican foreign policy outlook, which has a lot of resonance. It really resonates, you know, with those isolationist traditions in the Republican Party Mm -hmm. that a lot of people said had been defeated in the 1950s, but have actually proved to be a lot more resilient uh, than, than people expected. And so, you know, he's kind of made it acceptable once again to be, uh, you know, isolationist. He's made it acceptable to be anti-China and pro-Russia, which, again, that's I'm, I'm sort of scratching my head trying to figure out the logic of that viewpoint, but that is the outlook of a lot of Republicans. Um, and as you suggested, I think the, the kind of traditional Republicans who believe in NATO, who believe in America's global leadership role, that group is increasingly aging and finding itself uh, you know, no longer at in the in the driver's seat in the Republican Party, and and by the way, I would add that the the ultimate uh, the ultimate proof of that is Ron DeSantis, who is a supreme opportunist. And you know, when he was in Congress, mm-hmm. he actually advocated a pretty traditional, you know, peace through strength yep. Republican type foreign policy. 
And now he's yep. basically adopting the MAG isolationist view, which looks very skeptically skeptically upon aid to Ukraine, because I think he understands that's where the votes are in the Republican Party today. I think DeSantis in particular, I think that's very I think that's right. I think DeSantis in particular, the last few interviews he's done about about Ukraine have been sort of Putin curious, Putin adjacent. Yeah. They're sort of like, well, I don't know what he wants, but you know what we we're we shouldn't be causing. And it wasn't quite like Marjorie Taylor Greene of why are we waging war on Russia, um, at which which you know was an astounding assertion on right. her part. But um, yeah, DeSantis, but I, I do DeSantis think there, there's is smarter and more subtle. That's for sure. Yeah, by 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 an order of magnitude right. than Marge for sure. Yeah. So we were on a chat the other day, and we we're talking about like the like getting out of that that partisan bubble, and and it's a number of us who are like you know former never Trump folks. It really was something I was thinking about because I I feel like looking at Ukraine not as a not as a you know Republican or a Democratic activist these days. You can make some really clear assessments about the value of this of our of our support of them the value of the, our participation in in a robust alliance in Europe once again and it seems to me that while the democrats have become more hawkish they still don't have the image of that it it, it almost does fall to people like us who are in this like gap between the parties to sort of ring the bell on the necessity of strong alliances and a robust foreign policy and a defense establishment that can deploy American force judiciously and wisely, but with with devastating consequences if necessary. I, I don't feel like we have an environment where the national security interests of the country are sort of a front and center thing anymore in either party. I would I mean, disagree. The Republicans for all the reasons we talked yeah, about. Yeah, I would disagree a little bit because I do think that the leadership of the Democratic Party is is pretty centrist and pretty responsible. And you see that with Chuck Schumer, you see it, you know, the uh, president, for sure. Yeah, yeah. With, with his appointees, you know, Lloyd Austin and Tony Blinken, Jake Solomon. You see it with the Democratic leadership on the Hill. Uh, they're, you know, they're supportive of Ukraine. They're supportive of Taiwan. They're supportive of NATO. They're supportive of Israel. They're sort of upholding the traditional American foreign policy priorities. And uh, they're not cutting the defense budget. They're, you know, ensuring that we have uh, what we need to defend ourselves and our allies. Now, I think there is a little bit of a disconnect in the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party between the leadership and the grassroots. And no question there is a more progressive, you know, Bernie Sanders style faction within mm-hmm. the Democratic Party that is not all that comfortable with what the leadership is doing. But those those folks have fallen pretty silent now because I think Biden has done a pretty good job of co-opting the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And even the progressives in the Democratic Party at the end of the day they still want to back Ukraine. They still want to back Taiwan. There's not, you know, there is not that friendliness to dictators uh, that you see in the Republican Party at the moment. So, I mean, there are debates and factions within both parties, but I, I'm a lot more comfortable with where the Democratic Party is these days uh, than than the Republican Party. I think that's right. I, I mean, again, I, I I want them to be better. I want the Democrats to be better. I think they have improved dramatically. But looking at it outside that bubble of the old partisan lines that we've had to we've had to studiously sort of erase since 2015, as the parties have sort of like reversed their polarity on all these different things, is a, is a valuable exercise. You know, you wrote a great book a couple of years ago. In fact, I think we were on book tour at the same time down in Miami right. a couple of years ago. Yeah. 
about the corrosion of conservatism. I mean, and that really comes down to, uh, I think, a lot of things you outline there. How, I mean, obviously, I, I know the answer, but how have you seen that corrosion continue in the era since, was that was that 18 or 19? I think it was 19, right? 18, I think, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. But how have you seen that corrosion continue? And and what do you think happens? I mean, it, obviously, I think Trump has a has a very good chance of being reelected as the or selected as the Republican nominee again. But I think with people like DeSantis and others, they've become what I call unlimited government conservatives. They love the abuse of power. Where do you see like the 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 trail of conservatism leading in this era of MAGA nationalism and MAGA populism? Well, it seems to be leading in the direction of Orbanism, frankly. I mean, because mm-hmm. you know, Victor Orban has become kind of the new poster boy for a lot of Republicans, and he's certainly playing up to that. So uh, it does seem like a lot of Republicans really want this right-wing strongman in this country. And the division now is about whether it's going to be Trump or, or DeSantis, but they're both offering kind of a version, I would say, of the same appeal. And it, it, it has me very much puzzled. Uh, having grown, you know, as somebody who grew up in the 1980s and grew up with a very different version of conservatism and, and the Republican Party, I really don't know what, what either the GOP or the conservative movement stand for these days. It's really hard for me to define what are their core beliefs, uh, it, because so much has shifted over the last few years. And it's ironic because, of course, those of us who have left the Republican Party were accused of you know, of uh, Trump derangement, we're accused of being mm-hmm. rhinos, of having given up everything <laughs> we believe in because we just, you know, we just turn up our noses at Donald Trump or something, you know, something like that. But right. the reality is, I just don't recognize this party anymore. And as, you know, as Ronald Reagan said about Democrats, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about the the Republican Party. And, and you're right, mm-hmm. I don't see much left of kind of small government conservatism anymore when the the dominant uh, viewpoint in the GOP seems to be, you know, let's use government to crush our enemies and let's, you know, use government power against the forces of quote unquote wokeism and, uh, and, and, you know, whatever that means and, uh, and, and, uh, and all the other enemies that they, that they conjure up. We've already been discussing how Republicans have lost their way in foreign policy and you don't see a lot of that American leadership that Republicans used to stand for uh, during the Cold War. So, you know, what does that really leave? I think at the end of the day, the core beliefs of the Republican Party today, I would characterize as, uh, you know, ban abortion and cut taxes. I'm really not sure what else is left. And Own the libs. Own the libs, yeah. I mean, right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's basically, yeah. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, look forward to talking to you again very soon and uh, and keep the faith and uh, best of luck on the new book. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Max. I know you're going to be shocked, absolutely fucking shocked to find that Fox News and its entire management, its entire talent staff and everyone who walks in that fucking building, the American equivalent of the Rundfunk Radio Broadcasting Center in World War II, look it up, is um, on the enemies list this week. But the depositions from the Dominion voting machine lawsuit are so fucking crystal clear about the kind of wild, 
unbelievable abuse of their tremendous media power that Fox News has that when Rupert Murdoch in these depositions says, I knew what was going on, but I didn't stop it. I could have, but I didn't. This guy primed the pump. Tucker and Sean and Laura and the rest of the goons and creeps and skells and weirdos and fuckwits that run Fox and that are the Fox talent pool, they churned the MAGA base. They know those people aren't that bright. They know they're easily deceived by bright and shiny objects. So when they were told for months on end that the election was stolen from Donald Trump by Venezuelan voting machines, that the ghost of Hugo Chavez activated from the afterlife, they knew it was all bullshit. They knew it was all a lie. They knew it was a complete contrivance. Okay. And it led to January 6th. And it led to something even worse. It led to a reduction in the American faith and belief in our election system. It led to a reduction of the of the the, the, the American people's desire to believe in our elections. Because our elections, by the way, folks, are clean. Okay. V- voter fraud is a is an edge case trivial outlier problem. They made it into a lie, a huge, enormous, stinking pile of dog shit lie. Imagine a pile of dog shit the size of Staten fucking Island reeking in the sun. That's how big that lie was, and they knew it. They knew it every second of the way. So listen, I'm not actually going to say, Fox, you're on the enemies, let's get your shit together. What I am going to say is that if there aren't shareholder lawsuits out there, if there aren't attorneys from the major shareholders of Fox out there figuring out that they can take over this country from this band of criminals, from this clack of unbelievably dangerous, irresponsible fuckwits, then I don't know what to say because this is a network dedicated now to profit at the cost of American lives, at the cost of the vitality and viability of our republic. It is unbelievable what you're discovering. I read through the entire deposition that was released and the the cynicism is so fucking breathtaking, it will shock you. I recommend going reading more than the excerpts because it is absolutely so unbelievably, it pulls the curtain back so clearly on who these fuckers are. Anyway, Fox, you're on the enemies list and you will be forever. May God have mercy on your souls. This has been the enemies list. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad, along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious and more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.